Um, look, I think it's it's a less less a question of when do you go to retail. I think it's more a question of who you go to and at what scale, right? My advice has always been go to these small independent retails and just crush it in those twenty stores. Do not go to Target until you've crushed them, right? Like, I, and and when you go to Target, you know it's easy to say, "Hey, Target, can I have every shelf you have on every store in the in, in all of America?" You'd rather start with saying, hey, can I get distribution in like 500 stores, right? Like, and that's all I want. And like, can I prove it to you guys that this works? And once you do that, you want them asking you for more distribution, right? When you're in that position of sort of power, if you would, they're saying, hey, let us put you on every store. I think that's that's when you win, win retail. So I think small incremental, very careful steps in retail is what I always advise people on. Hi, I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and this is the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. If you're enjoying the show, also subscribe to the newsletter at theconsumervc.com, where you'll receive all new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. All content and episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only. It is not investment advice. This episode is brought to you by Vobin from Carta. Vobin from Carta is the easiest way to launch and run your venture investing. They offer SPVs and fund vehicles for GPs at all stages of the journey, from your first syndicate to operating a multi-million dollar venture fund. If you're interested in investing in startups, stick around after the episode where I chat with Gabriel Shin from the Vobin from Carta team, who shares his perspective and tips about how to start investing and how Vobin from Carta can get you set up. The link to Vobin from Carta's website is in the show notes. Our guest today is Rakesh Narayana, who is the general manager at Access VC. Access VC is the venture capital arm of Reckit. Reckit is a publicly traded consumer goods conglomerate focused on the hygiene, health, and nutrition spaces. You probably recognize their brands Lysol, Dettol, and Calga. So Access VC is the venture arm that Rakesh leads. Some of their investments include Beekeepers Naturals, Maud, and Future Method. In this episode, we're going to talk about corporate venture capital, which doesn't have the best reputation in the world of venture. And we're going to be talking about how Access VC approaches corporate venture capital a bit differently than what it's known to be in a great way. We're going to be talking about their different approach how they make investments, and how they think about exit potential and talk about exit potential with founders. I really enjoy this conversation. Without further ado, here's Rakesh. Rakesh, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you? Hey, Mike. Thank you for having me. And I hear you're nearly at your 300th episode, so congratulations. Yeah, who knows? This actually might be this actually might be episode 300. So, um, so I'll have to do some calculations, but either way, it will certainly be a special one. Very good. Hope it's not so bad that, you know, you have to shut down your podcast after this. I, I hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> oh, man. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. So let's start from the very beginning. What got you interested in consumer brand? How did you end up at a... Uh, so I am originally from India, you know, and uh, from a very sort of traditional middle class family in India. And one of my team once asked me, like, hey, you know, what was your childhood like? And I said, if you take, if you open Google and type, you know, um, Indian family on a motorcycle, 
you know, if you f- you'll find pictures of like four people, two kids on a motorcycle, and that was pretty much a summary of you know what uh, the kind of family I came from. Uh, so you know, that, I, I grew up in India most of most of my life. Um, was a bit of a as the Amer- as you guys in the US call it like an army brat, so moved around quite a lot of places and you know, uh, lots of schools and all of these things. Um, and um, uh, and and one of the things that I've always found fascinating about living in India. Um, and since then, having moved to London for, for university and then most of my career, um, is that in countries which are developing where there aren't, there isn't a lot of infrastructure, etc., brands have a lot of ability to impact your life, right? Like, you know, in, in the West, where you start to think about brands like governments and, you know, um, the FBI and, you know, the IRS and all of these sort of systems in place uh, to, to help you as, as an individual. In, in in most of the developing world, people think of like brands, like you know, you think about like um, mobile phone and telco, right? You think of a brand. You think about like healthcare. You think of a brand. Uh, you know, everything is driven by consumer brands. Uh, and I think when you come from developing markets, you sort of have this sense of brands are like ultimate. Right. So that's that's one reason I've been fascinated by consumer brands. Um, on the other side of things. I've always said, um, you know, I was raised for a lot of my life by my grandmother, um, and now I have I have a two-year-old daughter, and I've always said I'd like to do things that both ends of the spectrum really understand what I do, right? Uh, so when I say I work on a brand, and like my grandma gets it, she's like more much more excited than if I ever said I worked in an investment bank, right? And and so therefore it's fascinating. And on the, on the flip side, I you know. Uh, when my when my two year old is like un, is old enough to understand that I drink Oatly and I work on brands like that, uh, you know, there's a lot of fascination. I, I've been making her baby chinos with Oatly. It's actually quite funny. It's the most millennial problem to thing to do, but uh, uh, you know, so that 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 sort of availability and people knowing about what you do uh, and sort of being everyday culture is is something that's always fascinated me. Uh, so that's how I I got into got interested in consumer brands. Um, how I got into it was a, is a whole different story. Um, when I when I finished uh, university, um, I was originally going to go work for a consulting house here in London, um, and uh, one of the the executives at Record, who is now retired, had this fascinating idea of, uh, look, we're going to take kids who've come from Asia and we're going to send them who but who've studied in the West, who have studied in like Europe and in the US and stuff. And we're gonna send them back to Asia and help them build businesses and you know, help them support records core infrastructure then. So my first real job, believe it or not, was working in the world's largest condom factory in China. Right? Like so like twenty two years old. <laughs> yeah, I, I got I got shipped out there, uh, you know, and uh, to to a city called Qingdao, which you know, forgive my geography, I'd never heard of until sort of two days before uh, I, I'd been to. Uh, and it has like 9 million people. It's one of the most developed cities in the world. And it's, you know, in the in the west edge, western edge of China. Uh, and I turned up there with like, you know, all these beliefs of how, how companies work and brands work and people operate. And all of those things went uh, went for a toss. And I had to sort of learn what consumer brands are ground up in a factory in China, where my first job was to increase the gross margin of Durex condoms by ten percentage, right? And that was a, that's a, that's an interesting way to start your uh, start your career. So that's how I got into into consumer brands and sort of have grown up in in CPG since then. Uh, worked in uh, in consulting for a few years uh, and more 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 recently at uh, at Record at running their venture capital division.
that's a pretty incredible experience um, right out of the gate from college. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, for the first sort of, I don't know, two year of, the, of my life, you know, working, working there, I couldn't stop giggling every time we would have a management meeting like a, like a child. Uh, you know, we would we would have meetings. <laughs> you know, we would have meetings that we would be talking about like condoms and lubes and you know sex toys. And you know, I would just be in the corner just giggling, and people would just be like nodding with a sad nod. Uh, but you know, th- doing that has always sort of made me realize one one the scale and the and the reach that consumer brands have in the world. Like the fact that you know we we don't really know each other, but we can talk about a brand like you know Coca Cola or Nike or Durex or whatever, and have a lot to talk about. Right is is something that you know we wouldn't we wouldn't particularly do on many other topics. So that's that's something that I think I've always found that access I think is is fascinating. No, totally. I mean, if you look at like any any type of category, you're usually affiliated with one or two brands that obviously produce that that item in that category, and um and you and, and you already have that kind of that affinity with it. Um, which I think is, I agree with you. What's pretty cool about brand. I mean, it's also just like, you know, I mean, I was talking with, um, uh, with a, um, operator investor and he was saying how one of his friends started like a, you know, a, a, a very successful software company, but also had this like consumer brand that he did on the side that he started and he did it at dinner parties. All people wanted to ask him about was the, um, you know, consumer brand that he was working on, not like this, you know, successful software company. So, um, no. No disrespect for software because we definitely um, um, have a lot of software companies on the show, and, and, and what they're building is very interesting stuff. But I I do agree with you that 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 in terms of what if what, what can be like interesting conversations and what actually could unite people, it's it, it it's um, it's talking about brands for sure. So you you worked a few years in consulting. You you worked at Reckit. Um, why? How did you transition to um, to their VC fund? Why does Reckit have a VC fund? Period in in general. Yeah, uh, so I think on the, on the first question, um, I, I worked in consulting and I'd spent sort of most of my time in consulting uh, working on helping smaller companies raise or exit to, to bigger companies, right? Um, so that was a big focus of focus area of mine. But the other point of focus, which was just an upcoming topic at the time, was e-commerce and digital for larger companies, right? Like, you know, be, there would be large billion dollar sort of battery manufacturers and so on and so forth. Or like, hey, look, we've got this very sort of offline business. How do we how do we think about, you know, building e-commerce? What is this thing called e-commerce, right? Like D2C was not even a thing then. Um, and, and helping them build that was, was sort of my core thesis. And after having done that for a few years, I came to came join Racket uh, as sort of chief of staff to the president of of, of our group, um, you know, and and their their traditional sort of consulting exit path. So when you're like 25, worked in consulting for a few years, you go do a chief of staff role thing, right? It's it's a it's a, it's a relatively traditional path you take. Um, and when I was in CPG and sort of, you know I've spent enough time here, one of the things you you realize is, and this is not just true of CPG, it's true of all large companies that you know in a world where like a Nestle and a Danone and all of these kinds of big multinational exists. How could an Oatly be from a startup from Sweden? Like, I just don't get it. Like, where's where is this coming from, right? Like, because they have surely more resources, more people, more talent, like everything. So how how do all of these sort of startups, you know, emerge in CP? Um, and this is the same thing at Reckit. Like we would, you know, we have all of these categories uh, where we're market leaders in, but you still see like the real ultimate cutting edge stuff coming from a lot of really interesting startups who are experimenting with new technologies or experimenting with new sort of 
consumer groups and insights and so on and so forth. So there is like almost a systemic thing where like when you're large and when you're like a sailing, like a big ship, you you miss out on the speedboats. Uh, like you're never launching speedboats and the speedboats are always like the, the incumbent, the, the emerging brands. And uh, so that that sort of conundrum, if you would, has always excited me. And, and when I'd done my sort of chief of staff role for a few years and I was figuring out what we wanted to do, and one of the theses we submitted to the then CEO was like, hey, look, we'd like to build a, a, a consumer VC. And then he was like, get out of my room because 20 other people have done this before. What are you guys going to do differently? Like, you know, every CPG out there has got one. No one's ever created any value. Oh, and by the way, if you go ask startups, they're going to tell you all these CVCs are like, we don't want to take money from them. So the whole thesis was like, you know, this is not going to work. So we, we went away. We were like, okay, we're going to take some time. Let's rethink what you know what it is that we want to build, and then we came back and pitched uh, V one of what we have now, which is Access VC. And Access VC, like it says on the name, was a bit of an antithesis to CVC. Right. So we were like, hey, look, let's look at what are the five, six big things of CVC that people hate. People hate the toxic terms. People are worried that if you take money from a CVC, you have no exit options. People are worried you're going to have too much control. All of these things. And we're going to inverse them and say like, hey, we're going to start a fund which is going to be super transparent and open about how we take capital and who we take the capital from. We're never going to have a toxic term in our term sheet. You know, we're going to be committed to the fact that all of these startups, if they exit, they would exit to the best home possible and so on and so forth. So we wrote down this thesis and then we pitched it to the CEO and it was like, yeah, I still don't buy it. Go away and think about it more because um, <laughs> it's not unique enough. And then we were like, okay, we, we're going to come back and, you know, we, we said, what's the one thing we can build that is going to show credibility that we are who we say we are? And the inception of that was B Corp. Right, so we said let's let's try and figure out if we can we we can be the first VC that gets a B Corp certification because when you have a B Corp, you are committed not just sort of as a company but also legally, right? That you will follow the the commitments of being a benefit corporation, um, and we've been working on that for sort of eighteen months or two years, and and you know in perfect coincidence. I think just a week or two ago, we've just got our B Corp and we have officially become like the world's first corporate venture capital with a B Corp. Um, so that's, that's, that's a bit the, uh, the thesis of how we started. Okay. So can you, can you give an example of what toxic terms um, like CVCs traditionally um, um, have done? Usually it tends to be things like, okay, you have an investment from X food manufacturer oh, by the way, you can never take money from anybody else in the food manufacturing space. You have 20% of your company is, you know, is, is, is in equity with, with these guys. Um, so if you ever have to exit, you, know, you can only exit to them. Um, right? um, or you have, oh, when you, when you launch a brand, you can never launch a brand which is competing with our core business. Um, so you ha you have a whole variety of these things, or you can't enter a new market where we where these big companies have like a big footprint. So there, there's been there's been like multiple sort of um, restrictions put when uh, from from sort of uh, uh, corporate venture capitals in the past, and I think that's a lot of that has changed now. But I think a lot of that negative sentiment still lingers in the market. What happens if you have a portfolio company and Reckitt is interested in acquiring that company? And yet there's another 
um, there's maybe like a bidding war or another company that um, uh, that's also interested. If you're on the board of that company, do you have to say, okay, this is a conflict of interest. I'm not going to vote in terms of what actually happens or, or be part of what happens or how does it actually like work, um, work, end up working out in your mind? Yeah, it's a, look, it's a very good question. And, and I think the first thing to say is until a company is sold, the company is owned by the founder, right? It's not owned by the VC. It's not owned by the CV. It's not owned by the investors. It's the founder's company. And ultimately, the first sentence of our thesis is like companies and startups should go to homes, which is the best place for them, right? So if we are interested to, to work your scenario, Right. If say we're invested in the company and we're interested in acquiring them, but there are other people as well, what happens is like as soon as even the discussion of an exit or an acquisition comes out, we're on the board. We leave the board, right? Because we say we tell the founders, and it's actually in our term sheet. If, if the founder at any point feels like there is a conflict, they have the right to say, "Please, can you leave?" Um, and that happens a lot, right? It's, it happens because they want to launch in categories we're present in. And, you know, it, it, so th that's that's very cool. And we write it in the term sheet, so the founder gets a lot of comfort around that. But it don't, we also do it from a data privacy point of view because Access VC is set up complete as an independent entity with one LP, right? So we have our own board. We have our own sort of investment committee. Uh, and everything that's shared with this doesn't go to the parent, if you would, right? Like doesn't go back to the mothership. So any insights we have, any data we have, everything stays within the small sort of group. So our only objective is to maximize value for the investments we've made. And if, for example, like, hey, Racket want to buy this, but somebody else does as well, wherever the founder sees fit, it goes. How do you think, when you think about like the word strategic, because strategic gets kind of thrown out a lot. I feel like it's kind of a buzzword. Oh, we need strategic investors. We need this and that. Um, how do you think about strategic from from your mind when it comes to Reckit? Because as you say, like you are very independent when it comes to making your decisions when it comes to investing in startups. But how do you actually also leverage like the the value that that you can when it comes to Reckit, maybe on the distribution side, or do you not even kind of go there? Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a question. Strate what the hell does strategic even mean? Good question. Um, look, I, for me, if you're if you're a startup, when you're taking sort of you know, uh, capital and returns for equity from from anyone, I think there is a lot of narrative about we can help you do X, Y, Z on top of giving you money, right? We can help you with distribution. We can help you with digital. We can help you with marketing. And, and we always say, like, the problem is nobody knows what good help looks like, right? So um, strategic for me is, like, if you are a startup and, you know, you've got core capabilities and, like, hey, I know how to build a brand, I know how to nail Amazon, you know, I can crush it with retail, then there is no real value that a strategic anyone can add in the things that you can do super well. If at that point, and for that startup, like maybe a, a supply chain investor is a really good strategic investor. Maybe a retail investor can be a very good strategic investor. So I think that definition is so dependent on you and your management team as, an as a founder and team. I think that's, that's one. Uh, the second part of it, I would say, is there is a lot of blind spots if you're building a CPG brand, right? Um, you know, you, I'm sure you can a story around Laundress and a lot of these things where, like, you know, you, there is a lot of regulations and protection that is built around keeping people safe, right? You know, if you, if you are building a food brand, 
right? You've got to follow certain certain guidelines. If you're building a healthcare brand, you've got to go through the FDA, et cetera, et cetera. And that kind of stuff, there are maybe like three people in the world who can advise you on. Um, and that's where strategic can also play play a lot of value. So for me, strategic is really like differentiated value, which you couldn't buy online. Um, and if you can buy it online, honestly, if somebody tells you designing brands is our strategic value, I'm like, yeah, it's really not a strategic value because I can find you 5,000 design firms. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's a commoditized value. Totally, t- totally. I mean, like one one example when I think of a, a strategic one, like back when I had uh, Daniel Galati on um, at Comcast Ventures, he was saying how, you know, one of the ways that they're able to show, show like help um, DTC companies is providing, you know, potentially, uh, potentially providing discounts when it comes to advertising, um, on, on TV and, and, and on linear TV, um, uh, uh, for the brands, which I, which that sounds pretty cool. Um, so like, but of course, like str- strategic means a lot of different things in, in, in terms of the, the, the value you can add in different ways. So you have a hundred million pound fund. Um, how do you think overall about the fund deployment and as well as which categories you actually want to play in? Uh, sure. So obviously, um, with, with being part of Racket, we focus our investment thesis on two areas, uh, consumer healthcare and consumer hygiene. Right. Uh, so there's consumer in front of both. So that obviously makes it all B2B, B2C, I'm sorry. Um, so majority of our fund, I would say 80% of it is deployed in consumer brands and about 20% is deployed in consumer enablement companies. So e-commerce companies and, you know, things like that, where there is like value to be created by supporting the, the, uh, the infrastructure and the network uh, of startups. Uh, that's the way we think about allocation per se. Uh, in terms of spaces itself, I think there is... If you look at Racket as a company, we are invested and, you know, we have sort of large, big brands in billion dollar brands in spaces which are shy by categories. Sexual health is a very good one. You know, digestive health is another one. Um, you know, um, or aging population is another one. So lots of spaces where the consumer audience and the buying audience is massive, but there are actually very few brands out there that is building innovative solutions. Right, so those kinds of categories we always look to invest in. So let me give you an example. We invest in a company called Jude. Uh, Jude is uh, works on bladder care supplements and and sort of incontinence device uh, products for for the elderly. Right now, if you think about who this applies to, it isn't sort of you know that one percent New Yorkers who have more than a million dollars of disposable income. Like it's everybody. Like, you know, it's everybody, it's all human beings will go through it at some point in their life or, uh, you know, and therefore your mass, your population size is really the, your time, if you would, right? So that's the way I would, I would think about the spaces we invest in where the opportunity is big, but the consumer brands that are being, are very, built, being built are very, very few. And that's where we really lean forward. In. How, um, how also when you think, um, uh, when you think about different categories as well, when you're talking to entrepreneurs, how as well do you um, do you think about like exit potential or um, or how startups maybe should think about exits? Exits, um, hot topic of mine, uh, Mike. So it really is something we can we can spend a bit of time talking. Uh, <laughs> right. Look, I think exit is like the the bad e word to be spoken in a startup. 
right? Because nobody, no, no, no founder ever wakes up thinking like, oh, I'm gonna leave this company and I want to sell it, right? Like so, therefore, nobody wants to talk about it. When you take money from VCs, the VCs usually tell you they don't like, want to talk oh, about it. Yeah. yeah, they don't want to talk about it. Right? If it's like, in your you know, deck, like that is a red flag, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh, it means you're not passionate about it. Like, oh, okay. Right. But the VCs can be focused on exit, and that's perfectly okay. Um, and the, usually, what well, that's the advice you get given, right? They get they tell you, oh, you focus on building the company and like strategic options, all of this. Like we will focus on, and that's that's what we can help you with. And I, I you know, and I think it's a little bit like building a house. But then the realtor telling you, oh, don't, f- don't worry about the neighborhood. Don't worry about the market. Don't worry about if you can ever sell this house or not. Just, bu- just build a house as much as well as you can and just live in it. Right? And if you, if you hear that from a realtor, it would be, like be stupid advice. So it, it's, it's no different from a startup, right? When you're, a, when you're a CEO of the company, frankly, from inception to hiring to exit, everything is part of your responsibility. And I, I think you know, all startups should, should think about it. Um, but the question is like, how do you think about it? Because most people are very good at building brands, but aren't very sort of haven't really spent much of time thinking about where do where do consumer brands go, right? Um, and in my mind, I think there is like four obvious ways to take a company forward. I think the one and the most obvious is you know you sell to a large strategic, you know, Racket, Procter and Gamble, you. There's so many of them, you know, that, that's, that's, one, that's one, uh, one way to go. The second way is, you know, you, t- you raise a lot of capital from PE, large growth equity, and, you know, you're building your brand from 100 million to like whatever, right? That's, that's option two. And then option three was very trendy until last year, as you know, were the SPACs um, and, and going public. And somehow nobody wants to go public anymore. So that's completely gone off, gone off trend. Uh, and what's replaced them now is maybe the aggregators, where I think aggregators are, are becoming more and more common, uh, where people are happy to buy you, gulp up sort of five thirty million dollar brands and and sort of you know run them together. Um, so I think those are those are maybe the three right now that's existing: large strategic, P large cap, or an aggregator. I would say those are three obvious ways to think about who your customer is, right? And it's it's a little bit like you know when you get advice on building brands. You always get told, oh, you know, you should think about your consumer. You should think about your customer. You should know them really well. In some ways, selling your company is no different, right? Like you, you, you need to know who your buyer is, who your consumer is. Uh, and I think it, there's, it's actually not rocket science and you could work it out sort of on the back of an envelope. If you think of all the big strategics who have been acquiring, all it, you know, they're all public companies. So you can really hear half of their CEO speeches for the last three years and you can tell what kind of companies they're buying what their focus areas are, you know, what are the places they want to go to, what are the new countries, what are the new categories. It's actually all available publicly, right? So that already helps you sort of draw a thesis on, hey, where can my brand sit and what's the best house for my brand? Um, I think that once you've done that, then the question becomes like, how do you think about value creation for the other party? And what I mean by that is when when you're a brand, it's very easy to sort of think, I'm going to build a brand from whatever, zero to $100 million, exit for $500 million, pay presto, end of the world, right? Like that's, that's, that's the end of the story, right? Like, but in reality, if you sit on the other side, what you hear is like, okay, if you're, if you're a buyer of this brand and if you've spent $500 million on a brand, that's EBITDA zero. That's, that's good news in CPG still, right? Like EBITDA zero. It takes roughly 20 to 25 years 
for the parent company to generate that kind of profit, right? That's a long period of time, right? Like that's that's like as old as you are, right? Like you know, that's that's like another mic on earth, right? Like you know, it, that that's gonna take that's gonna take these guys some effort. So the question becomes like, if you work out at what size do I sell my company and what profile can the whoever acquires it create more value? Like the Aesop story is one of my favorite ones, right? And we can talk about it later. But I think it. There are a few companies who've done this. Eric Ryan's done this again and again with Method and then Ollie. Like, if you find the right sort of stage of your company to exit with the right sort of P&L structure, then I think these brands will have a 100-plus year life. And if, you, if it goes to the wrong party and, like, you know, if it goes at too high valuation, the easiest thing to do is to write it off and shut it down. It's painful, but it's easy. So I think it, you have to think about exit sort of, you know, from a point of view of longevity of the brands, as well as what the right phase is for your own company, as you think about think about these things, uh, does that make sense? No, it does. It does. Well, and I guess back to investing. When you are when you're um, in diligence looking at a brand, how are you thinking about what maybe the exit potential could be for that brand? And also, what are maybe parts about like the P and L have to kind of excite you? and or 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 work in your mind for for you to be to for you to see of course and not saying that you can predict um, an exit or anything like that but in that that maybe gives you confidence that it might be attractive to a to a potential strategic or or pe shop the first thing and this is maybe the most obvious is you know genuine interest and whether you've captured a minimum cohort of absolute loyalists towards your brand, right? We think of that number as 100,000 unique consumers, right? At, at 100,000 mark for a CPG brand in the US, it feels like that's a tangible number where like, you know, there there's something unique here. There is something, you know, people will follow and, and, and the brand will live on. So I think that's that's one of the things we, we think about. But from a PNL point of view, I think the absolute killer is always gross margin in CPG. Right, it's not EBITDA margins. I think in EBITDA margins, people are a bit more flexible. But gross margin is very, very hard to to crack if you aren't in the right place already, right? Um, so, and again, you can think again. You can work this backwards. If you look at the big CPGs in food, you know, you know where you can figure out where their margins sit: 40, 50 percent. Beauty sits, you know, 60, 70 percent. So, if you're building brands which are superior to those, I think exit becomes more obvious because somebody can buy it and it's enhancing their own portfolio, right? Versus if you're building like a super affordable, super cheap cosmetic brand, which is like 20% gross margin, an exit becomes very difficult, right? I'm not not saying those brands shouldn't exist. There's a place for them. But the trouble is like, you know, it really limits your options on where you go. Um, so I think that's gross margin is the, is the second point. Third thing I would say um, is... I don't want to say brand purpose because purpose like strategy is like the other big cliche, uh, but brand identity maybe, right? Brand identity beyond just having a fantastic product. Um, you know, sustainability was, was is, is sort of table stakes now. I think nobody buys brands which don't have basic levels of sustainability is, you know, uh, as much as possible, plastic free, chemicals free, etc. So I think that's become table stakes. But I think brands which have not just neutrality, but also have a positive impact on the world, I think are, is another criteria we continue to look at, right? So, you know, every time we invest, but also every time a consumer picks up your product, does that make the world like 
a little bit better. And, you know, and I think there's a lot of consumers, like I'm sure, including you, me, especially people who are, you know, younger, buy those kinds of brands, even if it's a dollar more. Um, right. And I think that's that's a third a third sort of lens to look at brands from, especially when we look at it, we are, we're quite uh, critical. On. I, I really appreciate you. Uh you saying your own uh, criteria and I, and I, and I totally agree with you in terms of like, you know, I mean, I, I agree with you on all, all things you said, but um, on the brand identity and how it's also posi- like counter positioned towards some of the other brands too. Um, I'd imagine that's also like, uh, that's also has to be compelling. And I, and I love how you kind of went back to at the end of the day, it's like gross margin. Um, that is pretty, pretty, um, uh, pretty critical. They have those strong gross margins and, you know, not me, you know, being able to as well, I'd imagine, have be able to be in a position where you actually have uh, can have a strong wholesale business even though you aren't in wholesale but you actually have like the margin profile where it actually could make sense for for wholesale and and not just d2c what are the typical kind of stages uh stage in the brand when you when you actually do investment what's like the the typical check size that that, that you typically deploy and um the, the the initial check size and then also um what in terms of maybe like revenue ballpark brands usually are at uh, so usually when we invest in the company, they've had the, uh, you know, anywhere between one to $5 million in, in revenue. And we invest, you know, about, about the similar number, anywhere between one and $5 million into, into equity. Uh, but usually the, the indicator for us is the 100,000 consumers. So we look at number, because it's, it's get easy to get to 5 million if, you know, if your product is like $500. Right. So, but then that's not a lot of people buying your brand. So, and, and in the, in, in some ways we're in the world of like large CPG, right. As opposed to, um, very sort of luxurious premium brand. So that's, that's something we look at. Um, and you know, the companies also tend to have nailed one channel really well. So they've either cracked D2C or cracked Amazon or have started in retail, but I, I, we don't expect them to be in all three, certainly, especially at that kind of size or scale. Uh, but as long as there is a, strong level of um, consumer affinity and they've crossed sort of the $1 million mark, we look at, we look at in that. In them. Um, when they're obviously like beyond the 100 millions, they're not also, you know, they're too big for us. So we also don't invest there. It becomes sort of more an acquisition discussion uh, and it goes to our business development folks. Um, we also have a smaller accelerator program, which we run out of London, uh, which focuses on early stage entrepreneurs, like folks with fantastic ideas, but maybe not so much experience, uh, you know, looking for their first, second, third check. Uh, we also do that as part of like an angel accelerator. That's really helpful. Um, Cause I know you're very, very passionate too about like different exits is part of your discussions. When you talk to CEOs is part of your discussions, how, how big do you want to grow this brand? Oh, um, I think all CPG CEOs, employees, everybody would hope to have like, billion dollar brands right like it's like the the beacon of of cpg you know everyone everyone thinks about like the brands of that size uh, but i think you know there are companies which is there are successful companies that can sit in all phases right and maybe now is a good time to talk about the the aesop example right like where the first time they were acquired they were a 50 million dollar brand you know and the second time they've been acquired they're a 500 million dollar brand uh, right and clearly different CPGs find those sizes and that kind of growth profile more interesting. Um, so I think I, I don't I don't think there is a one number that you know every CEO CPG is looking for. Uh, but I think the amount of value you can create post buying I think is what everybody's after. It's it's not the del- it's like it's not what size you're buying at, but what size you believe you can get it to. 
I think that's what people are, people are really looking for. Do you also just think in this current climate that strategics um, are um, kind of have more leverage when it comes to um, um, the exit, just because like the SPAC market has uh, has dried up? I know you mentioned as maybe an, an the Amazon aggregator uh, market as a replacement to the SPAC market, but I'd imagine t- Amazon aggregators are just typically acquiring um, uh, much uh, lower revenue businesses than than what was exiting the SPACs. Would love to just kind of hear about what how ha- how you think about the current kind of exit market um, or M and A scene today. Uh, look, I think um, I think it is it is a harder market from both sides, right? It's a harder market uh, certainly for startups because you're not getting the. 10x, 20x revenue valuation at minus 20, minus 30% with that. I think that's those mar- those days have gone, right? Like I think now most investors are expecting, certainly at scale, you know, you are profitable, right? Like even EBITDA zero is being seen as like unacceptable at, at beyond, a, beyond a certain scale, right? Like people are already asking like, hey, are you at like 10, 15% EBITDA minimum? Um, so I think it, it has made it harder. Uh, therefore, you know, CEOs start to spend a lot less time on, on, on growth and more time on like operational efficiency and so on and so forth. So it also changes like where people are focusing on for which not every startup founder is ready for, right? It's a very different job to go out there, drum up business and like get consumers from like TikTok versus like get margin and EBITDA fixed. It's, it's totally, it's almost like a different profile, um, right? And, and so I think it is going to be harder for, for startups and, and founders. Um, on the on the flip side, also for strategics, right? Like you know, there is a lot more, you know, scrutiny on what is being acquired, right? Uh, ultimately, these are publicly listed companies. They have public stockholders. They have pension funds. They have you know, re- like big money invested by like people who want credible, sustainable returns. And and you know, you don't want you don't want sort of funds deployed to anything. So even when companies look at startups, they they are scrutinized on what they buy. Are they going to really add value, or are they going to destroy these startups? You know, there's lo- more questions asked on every side. Uh, so it's it's a harder market, Mike. So there's no there's no doubt about it. Um, but I think, but I think on the on the flip side, what the market also is doing is it's removing a lot of noise from the system, right? For when you build clean beauty, like there were like five thousand clean beauty startups. Right. And, and it was just a question of like how much VC money can get into every single one of these. Right. And uh, so and product differentiation and uniqueness and all of that sort of took a bit of a backseat and raising more capital became sort of the ultimate beacon of success in startups, uh, certainly in CPG startups. Right. Um, and I think that's sort of going away. Right now, people are asking the question of like, don't tell me ARR, like, because that means nothing. What did you do the last 12 months? Uh, right, like that's that's what really matters because that's that's dollars in the bank. So, uh, in that in that wave, I think a lot of the uh, st- startups who haven't been very disciplined in capital allocation will probably wind down, um, and then what you're left with will be the really fantastic ones, which I think will have like another hundred years to go. Right, the same way the ones that get acquired are going to be some stellar startups, which will also t- stand the test of time. So, in some ways, all these companies become more sustainable per se. Uh, which which I think is is probably for the best. So it, in terms of sustainability, how are you thinking about right now? I know that big topic right now is, oh, if you're a company, you have to get profitability. You have to get the profitability. And you're seeing also a number of like bridge rounds or inside rounds um, rather than... Um, uh, rather than uh, you know um, growth rounds or or, or, or rounds that um, up rounds, excuse me. Um, but like, how are you? How are you 
what are you kind of telling entrepreneurs in, in today's market? What does kind of profitability need to you? When do you think um, a company should be at maybe a, a profitable level in terms of like revenue or or the size that they're at? Oh, it's a, it's a hard question, and it's all so, so dependent on the on the on the, on the, on the type of business they're in. Um, but I think you know, to if you you can break startups, I think into sort of four buckets, right? I think companies which are in the zero to twenty five million dollar revenue bucket, then the twenty five to sort of hundred million dollar bucket, then the hundred to two fifty, and then two fifty and beyond, right? And I think. In that first bucket, zero to twenty-five, I think you should have got to zero EBITDA by the time you are twenty-five million revenue, and I think that is what is expected now, if not more, right? Whereas in the past, I think you could go up to a hundred without being EBITDA zero, and I think that those days are gone. I think by if you are at a hundred million dollars in revenue today, you are expected to at least be at ten percent EBITDA. Um, so there is a there is a meaningful expectation on profit, not only because you know, you want to see if these companies will survive without more venture funding, but also because you want to see whether these brands can survive in omni-channel ones. So, you know, when you go, when you're in retail, when you're in B2C and on Amazon, I think all three, obviously you've seen this before, D2C is the most expensive. So the excuse has always been, oh, we're 100 million, but we're only due to see, therefore we're not profitable. But the day we go to retail, we're going to be profitable. I'm like, it doesn't, it doesn't work like that, right? Like, it's, it's not like, you know, there's just free profit sitting on retail floors. You, in retail, you're competing against the big boys, right? Like, you know, you're competing against like every large CPG out there. You're fighting for every inch of sort of shelf space. There is, a, you know, every time you get listed, there's listing fees. There is all sorts of costs that come with retail. And the, and the most dangerous thing about retail, I always tell startups, is like, you only get one shot. Right? You just, you can never have a second shot at retail. If your product is not sort of doing X number of units per store, per facing, per shelf, you're out, right? Like, they're going to keep you in there for three months, you're out. Like, D2C is, got, is so much more forgiving, but you can take the brand off, you can reskin it, you can rebuild your website, you can try again. It's a, the environment is so much more forgiving attempt to, but I think even with infinite capital, retail doesn't give you second chances. Uh, so I think, you know, in, 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 in that sense, you're expected to be omni-channel by the time you're $100 million unprofitable. And I think that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the profile that's expected today. When does it make sense then for a company, because you say you only get one shot, you're competing against the big boys. You're 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 competing against these incumbents, which are you know um, have um, control the shelves uh, ultimately, um, given how much um, how much leverage they have with their supply chains. When does it make sense for a company in your mind to actually go to retail? Um, look, I think it's it's a let's let's a question of when do you go to retail. I think it's more a question of who you go to and at what scale. Right. My advice has always been go to these small independent retails and just crush it in those 20 stores. Do not go to Target until you've crushed them. Right. Like, and, and when you go to Target, you know, it's easy to say, hey, Target, can I have every shelf you have on every store in, the, in all of America? You'd rather start with saying, hey, can I get distribution in like 500 stores? Right. Like, and that's all I want. And like, can I prove it to you guys that this works? And once you do that, you want them asking you for more distribution, right? When you're in that position of sort of power, if you would, they're saying, hey, let us put you on every store. 
I think that's that's when you win win retail. So I think small incremental, very careful steps in retail is what I always advise people on. Um, because more than anything, right? If you look at cash management, not the most interesting topic, but right, like you know, you've got X amount of capital in the bank. If you want to put one product in every Walmart store in the US, like, you know, you've probably burned through all of your Series A just building inventory, right? So if you don't sell, that's it, right? You know, you're you've got a you, you've got to wind down shop because you've got so much stock sitting which can expire. You do so. I think retail is a very tricky game. So I think progressive small retail, I think, is a is a very important uh, thing to think to think about. The other part of retail is the category you're in. So um, very recently, we were we were spending some time with a with a company who were building uh, incredible products in the menopause space. Right now, menopause is uh, in CPG an emerging category. Um, still not established, you know. Still not spoken about by most people. Uh, retail have no footprint there. Now, if in those brands you try and go retail, the retailer doesn't know where to put you. Like, like, you know, should this sit next to, you know, supplements? Should this sit next to, you know, sanitary pads? Should this sit next to healthcare? Where, do, where does it sit? Right, like, and they have no clue, and they're like. They're asking you for advice and you don't know because you've never worked in retail and it creates this difficulty. So you also want to only go to retail in categories where there is a level of maturity or the retailer is like, hey, look, we're going to super lean forward in this space and we're going to think about this and we're going to put up our money against it as well. And then then you can go there. So category is important uh, before you go to retail and also sequencing is important. No, that's that's really um, uh, that's really useful. Um, in terms of uh, in terms of just all these all these different kind of considerations you have to think about when you go to retail, and also I agree. I mean, because it's one of those things that if you go into twenty stores, you you know do you, you perform really well in those uh, in those twenty stores, then you then have demand from that retailer saying, okay, like let's go more, let's go more, let's um, and then you have that kind of backing from them from that uh from that side instead of going national, and then it maybe doesn't work national, and then you maybe lost that vote of confidence from the retailer. Exactly, and it's you know it's very it's very very hard. You're totally right. Like you know, there are very brands who have recovered from a failed launch in a large retailer, um, right? Because it's just very hard. Like you won't get VC money after that. You this creates a string of issues. Then you're always sort of you know justifying for for the rest of your your brand's existence. Let's talk a little bit about menopause. Maybe some of the categories that still are maybe uh, that are obviously underserved um, when it comes to brand recognition, and as well as different types of products, and and maybe on the uh, and, and on the innovation side. Um, in some of in, in some of these categories, menopause, maybe uh, sexual wellness, which I know you also invest in. You know, how do you see see the landscape under, when it comes to investors? Do you find that there's actually not that many investors that actually are serving the space, and it's an opportunity that. Uh, uh, for you all to um, to invest in, or is there actually pretty like a robust investor community there? It's a it's a good question, and you know, the answer actually is quite simple. Uh, rather, the problem is quite simple. It's a problem of diversity. Um, majority of VC, you know, VC as an industry historically comes from tech and finance, right? Um, and VC and CPG certainly, I think most of the folks. You know, you probably know I've met in my, in my career also are ex-bankers who are sort of, you know, enjoying consumer goods because it's very accessible and therefore have become a bunch of capitalists. So the the flow is very much from v, from PE and banking and all of these kinds of industries into into VC and and that creates sort of a duo problem. Um, those industries that feed into VC 
I've never had a very high diversity. It tends to be sort of, you know, middle-aged white men. And then they, they have sort of become the leaders in CPGVC, right? So, you know, most of these VCs are run by that profile of people. There are a few sort of fantastic uh, female-run VCs and also sort of operator-run VCs. But the, the big bulk of it are pre- people who are like, you know, ex-bankers, white, are not very diverse, you know, come from big cities, et cetera, et cetera, right? And therefore, they find it very difficult to relate to certain problems. They're like, oh, but menopause has never been a problem in, a, in the last 20 years I've been in this industry. Oh, yeah, actually, it has been. It's just no one's spoken about it. And, you know, the voice of people who are going through it has not been as big and so on and so forth. So the, the problem is the problems get minimized because you don't relate to it as an investor. And when you don't relate to it, you think, ah, there's no market for this. Right, um, it's it's actually quite funny with uh, the same with bladder control and that and that category. We found a lot of interest from like very old investors who are like, "Hey, I never thought this was a problem. I've just turned sixty five, and this is a real problem." Like you know, and they've like whispered to me in the corridors after we've finished the meeting, saying like, "Oh, you know, like I, this is a really good company because you know I can see the need for it. I would pay anything." Right, and and so it's like. You, unless you're in sh- in the shoes of the the person who needs the solution, you you sort of underestimate the market, which is true also of sexual health. You know, sexual health, ninety nine percent of the world still tends to be a very taboo category. People don't talk about it. Retailers don't want it on shelves, right? Um, um, you know, it's, they see it as like a as as a super sort of no go categories. How could you have a mass retailer with sex toys? Like unacceptable. But you know, um, but but of course, like the market for it is like everybody on earth. So it, it, there's a big sort of disparity between be, between these. The third other category we've looked at, and one of my uh, favorite ones, is um, is poo. Poo, right? And it, kids pooping is one of the big biggest pain problems p- parents have. A lot of these macro everyday problems, which there is a lot of demand for, but, but, they, but the market is just full of brands built in like, the 60s and the 70s and the pink it and shrink it era of marketing, um, right? And and therefore don't get investing. So uh, when when we find these kinds of brands, I always think it's like a gold mine almost of like these brands can grow 100x to where from where they are and they have very little investor profiles going after them. Yeah, I'd imagine from like an investor perspective, like it's, um, you know, if you think about like the supply and demand side, um, since of course uh, brands, you know, need capital in order to grow, um, and since there isn't a lot of capital, it's because you say it's a lot of like, you know, old white males that are actually investing in these categories and, you know, they're not, um, they're not so, um, uh, they're not, you know, it, they don't understand the problem, for example, for like, in like women's health company, for example. Um, and they don't, they, they can't really empathize. That's why, like, I, I said this, I, I said this one, but I would love it if, we can kind of take more of like an enterprise SaaS approach when it comes to consumer, where it's like, okay, what are the actual enterprise SaaS? Like, okay, what are the actual like companies' problems that are dealing with? It's not you, it's the company, right? That it's actually is the customer, and so it's it's. But in consumer, I think that sometimes what what gets lost is that, um, okay, well, well, this is a consumer company. I'm a consumer, so if I don't get it, then no one's gonna get it, right? And that's the, and that's just exactly what uh, uh, not what happens. Um, what's um, wrap it up here. What's one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally? One book inspiration is hard, but I'll, t- I'll tell you two things I'm reading and then maybe that's helpful. One fiction and not uh, nonfiction that I've read maybe in the last, uh, re- in recent times. I think 
Well, I'm reading uh, The Happiness Advantage by the Sh- by Shonaka, and it's it's nothing related to VC, it's nothing related to CPG, you know, but it's a, it's a fascinating book because it talks about how you split happiness and success and not look at them as like, if you're successful, you're happy, and if you're happy, you're successful, because it's just a perpetuating cycle of egg and the chick- chicken and the egg, and you know, you don't know what came first. Um, and that's, I've, I've really loved, loved that book, and we're, we're talking about as young, new parents, uh, how do we raise kids who can differentiate between the two and strive for both? Um, so I think that's that's one thing I'm reading. Uh, for those of you who hate reading, there's also a fantastic YouTube video. I think Sean Acker's got one of the best sort of TED Talks out there, so worth watching. Um, the other one I'm reading is, is right now is Americana, uh, which is uh, which is a really cool book about. Uh, about a kid from Sudan who's uh, you know who's, uh, who's who's building a life in the U.S. and how a lot of people come from very rich inherent cultures uh, in Asia and Africa and come to the U.S. and how they become Americanized and how that creates a subculture and uh, you know as as an immigrant myself I find that a very fascinating topic in you know coming living in London coming from India so uh, that's that's something I'm reading also very interesting. I think you're the first that has, that has mentioned uh, both these books on the show. So really excited to add to our list. And um, this is this is great. Bo- both sound terrific. Rakesh, thank you so much for your time. This was a lot of fun. Uh, likewise, Mike. Thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, good luck, with, uh, good luck with everything. Thank you. You as well. And there you have it. It was a pleasure chatting with Rakesh. Rakesh, thanks again so much for coming on the show. Gabriel, thank you for joining me today. How are you? Yeah, really great. Uh, thanks for having me, Mike. No, it's a really appreciate it. So, and what are typically like the fees that are associated when whether you set up a, a Vobin account or even if you um if you want to you know run your investment por- uh, portfolio off of um, Vobin um or another one? What's wh- what's typically your the cost that, that you're going to uh, incur? Yeah, from a cost perspective, we're extremely price competitive. Um, so if you went through the traditional route, you have to go to a, you know. A fund lawyer, you'd have to go to you know high street bank or you know a major bank to get a bank account for the investment vehicle, and then you'd have an administrator kind of administer the SPV until there's an exit. Um, overall, costs can be north of you know 20k. Um, when you go through a platform like Vobon, you know we charge about 8k, uh, which includes the lifetime administration of the SPV, including the legals, the banking, the investor onboarding, and the administration. So, um, rel- relatively cost uh, effective. Um, I would say, you know, in terms of deal size, it can be anywhere from 50k allocations on upwards. How does that 8k kind of get broken down? Is that if you're like a pretty active? Um, I guess, like, if you're a pretty active investor, maybe you're not using the platform for just one investment, you're using it for several. Does that kind of churn out to like 8K annually, or maybe part of that 8K um, annually? Or, or how does it kind of work as a function? Yeah, definitely. So it's it's a transactional fee. So once, you know, you have, you know, significant interest from investors wanting to invest into, you know, the allocation or the company that you're fundraising for, um, it'd be paid on the back end. So once you've successfully fundraised, so there is no economics upfront. It's only once you've successfully fundraised, uh, which is, you know, extremely beneficial. There's no downside risk for you to create an SPV. So there has been, you know, clients where, you know, they're structuring an SPV, but, you know, their anchor investor falls through or, you know, it's super competitive and, you know, the lead VC just takes the full round for themselves. So they're not left carrying the bag of, you know, creating a legal entity and, you know, bearing the costs. 
Um, so it's only paid once you've successfully fundraised. Um, and it's a one-time fee, which covers the lifetime administration. Again, if you're enjoying the show, I highly recommend subscribing to the Consumer VC newsletter at theconsumervc.com, where you'll receive all new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the deals that are happening. Thanks for listening.